0: Well, the story is a bit like this, the section for this afternoon. In fact, it includes a couple of verses from uh, the previous section, the section that we looked at last week. In fact, the verses from the previous section and the closing verses that we read uh, this afternoon almost act a little bit like bookends. It it deals with the altar and the altars that Abraham uh, built and the fact that he built some altars when he first went into the land. This story is relatively simple, there's a famine, he ends up in Egypt, he goes down to Egypt, he comes back out of Egypt and he ends up going to those points of altars once again. So there's the bookends to the story. The reality is that this story is absolutely packed with human experience. The ups and downs, the highs and the lows, the challenges and the difficulties Life feels like that. In fact, if we want to give ourselves a little bit of a, if you like, a, a picture of that, uh, a, a kind of situational on the screen quickly, uh, if we just look at the most successful, one of the most successful movies right at the moment is the Batman film, uh, The Dark Knight Rises. I'm sure some of you will have seen it. I've not seen it. But I'll tell you this, it is not going to be a spoiler alert to say that it goes from one crisis to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. In fact, I understand that this one lasts pretty much three hours of bouncing from crisis and seemingly impossible situation, and yet somehow he gets out of it in the end. We go from one to the next, to the next. I, I, if, if I've really upset you with the storyline um, You've obviously not seen any of the other movies because it's absolutely the same pattern consistently. It's just one to the other. But you know, sometimes life for us feels like that, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel like that? It feels as though no sooner have we got through one issue and we find ourselves at a point of, if you like, relative stability, we find that we've got to a point of feeling more comfortable than we once were. We look back and we see what we've just come through and we realize to some extent, we look back and we say, how did I get through that? We realize that for those of us who understand that God is working in our lives day by day, we see that he has been dealing in that situation and got us to this point. We feel as if we've found some stable ground and then now we find ourselves, wham, straight back in to another situation. That is exactly what this story is like. To go back to last week, just a quick reminder, God tells Abraham to leave his family home, to leave the land and the, uh, if you like, the, the, the relative comfort of the metropolis of Haram and to go and to live in tents in the desert. Now that's a big call. That's a massive thing that God calls him to do. Uh, And he ends up in this land, traveling from place to place. But where we saw the conclusion last week is we see a point where Abraham reaches that point of building altars. It seems as though he's reconciled himself, he's come to terms with what God has called him to do. He's building these altars, making a statement to say, This is the land that God has called me to. I believe it, I trust that call, and I found. Uh, a point in life of stability and comfort, that this is what I'm called to do. One sentence in our reading changes all of that. We read in the first uh, verse of our reading this afternoon, now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. We're going to look at this in three ways this afternoon. The first is disaster the second is doubt, and the third is deliverance. The first is disaster. The reality is, God has called Abraham to leave comfort, to go into this land, a land that God has said, go into, a land which he has believed that he's found a sense of peace, a sense of comfort, a sense of stability. This is where I'm supposed to be. And then the next thing is there is a famine in the land. Now, there are some folks, as they've looked at this, they've said, well, I think there's, I think there's, um, there's something of a lack of faith with Abraham because he, he ends up going to Egypt. I don't actually believe that. I believe there is a sense of reality that we see here. God has placed him in this land and then the next thing we see that there is a famine which drives him out of the land that God has given him. Now that ending up in Egypt is really important. It's it's crucially important and we're going to see that in a few minutes. He had to end up in Egypt but God said "Go into that land which wasn't Egypt doesn't it feel like that sometimes? Doesn't it feel as though I've reached a point where I know where I am and then the next thing, it feels like the wheel has fallen off. One little verse there is filled with human experience, a famine in the land. I reckon that, that if Abraham was anything like me and because he's just a normal guy, I'm, I'm convinced that he is just like me and probably just like you as well. He'd be asking the kind of questions. What's gone on here? What are you doing to me? <laughs> I, I, I was, Wasn't I called to go into this land? And now I'm out of it. Now I have no choice. The, re- the reality of the situation is that it's Egypt or die. That's the reality. It's Egypt or die. The famine in the land is severe. He has to leave and yet God has said this is where you to be. I think there's a massive amount in that sense of disaster that we can understand. If we've got on the one side, we've got this idea that God has put him in the land and then on the other side we find out that God is driving him out of the land because of this famine, does that mean that either of those are wrong? <laughs> Has God placed him there? Yes. Is God allowing the situation to drive him out of the land? Yes. Therefore, it tells us three things. It tells us this, number one, and maybe we can relate to some of these, or rather grab a hold of them in our understanding of our own life experience. Number one, it's this if we understand clearly that we are heading in a particular direction and then it all falls apart, it does not mean necessarily that we have misunderstood God's hand in a situation. It does not mean that. How many times do we find that we have a feeling, an experience in our, in our day-to-day dealings? I've, I've sought to be faithful in this way. I've sought to follow God's guidance in this way and then the wheel has fallen off in life. Therefore, I've got this tendency to think that I must have misunderstood what God said. Abraham did not misunderstand what God said. It was absolutely clear. We read it. Leave there and go there. You didn't misunderstand that, Abraham. The fact that you are now facing famine and it's Egypt or die does not mean that you misunderstood it. Number one. Secondly, as we see it unfold, The disaster does not mean that God has deserted you. (laughs) Man, do we need to understand that. Because don't we have a natural tendency that when a crisis comes, when I've been following God's leading in my life and a crisis comes, isn't our natural assumption that God's deserted me? He's no longer there. Was God there? In the first call, yes. Was God there when he's driven out of the land? Yes. He's not deserted him. It might be something entirely unexpected, but he's not deserted him. And thirdly, is God punishing him? Because that's our third tendency, I think. I've done this, and then this happens. That means that God is angry with me. Is God angry with Abraham at this point? Absolutely not. There is something going on in Abraham's experience that he does not see the outcome. We have the wonderful privilege of being able to read this. Thousands of years later, we can see the end from the beginning. We can see how it works out. We can see the journey and the stepping stones that God is putting in place. It's there for that reason. It's there for us to be able to see in the experiences of this man when he couldn't see what was going to happen in the next months and the next years, we can. So that we can know that the God who told him to go there has not deserted him, is not punishing him, and he hasn't misunderstood what God has said. You know what? Our experience in the 21st century can so often be just like this. We head off in a particular direction because we know that God is with us. And then the next thing, one thing after another after another. The Apostle Paul said it a bit like that. He was he knew that God had called him to 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 be a spokesman for Jesus Christ amongst the Gentile people. What happens? He ends up in prison, he ends up stoned. ends up shipwrecked. He reels them off in his letter to the Corinthian church. He gives this whole list of all of the things that have happened to him, which actually for him become the, the absolute convincing message that he is doing the right thing. That the difficulties and the disasters and the crisis are not God deserting him, not that he's outside of God's plan and not that he's misunderstood God, but rather the reality that he is in this and he is in a spiritual battle and he is being faithful and that does not come easy. Abraham faced a life and death situation for him and his family. There was only one way, which was Egypt. Egypt. Why? Because Egypt in geographical terms is in the lower level. It's a a more fertile land. It's the place where we see continually people go for the sake of uh, provision. With the Nile Basin uh, and the regular flooding of the Nile, it's the place that was able to provide food when other parts of the ancient world were not able to sustain the production of food. And so Abraham ends up down in Egypt. However, I think there is a message in this in terms of doubt. Because he does go down to Egypt. How does he respond? Look at the way we see it unfold. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me but will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. It's doubt. Why is that doubt? It's doubt because God has already said, from you and from your wife Sarai, I am going to create a great nation. Now, right at this point in time, there's just the two of them. They don't have any children. They've got Lot, his nephew with them. They've probably got a few other people with them, disconnected people, maybe some wider family members, Uh, but they've got the two of them. And God has said, that's what's going to happen. Now, the reality is that God, having said that, will deliver it, and he will deliver it through Abraham and Sarai. (laughs) But he's thinking, well, I've got to protect that maybe. I've got to find a way to make sure that I can't just trust God in that. I've got to find my own way of how to make sure that I survive this situation. I tell you, I tell you, that is us, isn't it? That is our experience. How often do we face a seeming impossibility and we think, okay you, you can 't look after this God this is i, I know you 're there i know you 're with me, but you 're somehow disconnected from this reality i 'm about to go into egypt i 'm about to face the reality that there are those in there will look at my wife think she 's beautiful, and kill me so that they can take her and then it 's all blown i 've had it she 's had it and as a kind of byproduct of that, your plan won't be fulfilled. So I'm going to take this into my hands. I'm going to deliver the solution. And the solution that he comes up with is, "You're my sister." Why is that? Why did he say that? There's a few reasons for that. I think it's important. Number one, he says, "You're my sister because they didn't have children. Now, in the, the ancient world, obviously, there would be an expectation of that. Uh, and so there was, a kind of a, there was a reasonableness on the face of it. Secondly, it wasn't entirely untruthful. <laughs> Later on, we read in Genesis, a bit of a family tree, which gives an indication for us to understand that Sarai was kind of his half-sister. There's a connection which allows him to sort of say that. But there's another way, I think, and and in trying to understand this, I think there's another incredibly helpful thing. The ancient world worked like this, not just the the ancient, what was the pre-Jewish world, but the ancient world in its entirety worked like this. In the absence of the father, the brother possessed the sister the sister was the possession of the brother therefore he was responsible for her he was actually the decision maker on who she should marry i can make the decision you are my possession you are my responsibility and you are my possession so if we go into this land and there is every temptation oh sorry every tendency uh, in this This land where we go in as defenseless immigrants, there is every tendency for me to be killed. But if we can say that you're my sister and we can say that I'm the one who you can come to and you can ask, if you want to marry marry this woman, come to me. I can fend them off. We can survive. We can get through this. We can keep going. And we've got a plan here. But the plan didn't take account of the desperately awful mix of power and sex. The power of Pharaoh and that cocktail of sexual desire. Because you see, Pharaoh, he didn't have to think twice about all of that. It would seem to me as I've looked at the various options in this, it would seem to me, as they go in there, and everything seems to be going fine. They're in Egypt. Nobody's killed Abraham at this point. There's the two of them in there. And then next thing, word gets to Pharaoh. He ain't going to come and talk to Abraham and say, can I marry your sister? There's no negotiation there. He is, she is taken into the palace harem that's it the outcome of which is that pharaoh as a if you like as a payment as a sense of gratitude just pours out wealth on abram he treated abram well for her sake and abram Acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. Do you think that mattered much, really? Do you think that was acceptable repayment? Do you think in the personal experience of Abram and Sarai at this point in time, that wasn't a bad trade-off? I don't think so. I think Abram, once again, is just distraught. I might have all sorts of things being poured out on me. But the reality is, we've come into here. I thought we had a plan to save us both. To save us both. It worked for a while, it seemed. And now, she's been taken into the most powerful man's harem in the whole of the known world. That's where it is. We've had it. It's fallen apart. If if the famine was bringing them down to this level of experience, a level where they thought they'd reached the bottom, a level where they thought it can't get any worse than this, they go into Egypt, then this is just taking it to another level altogether. This is worse than they could ever thought possible. The worst that they could imagine is that Abraham would have died and Sarai would have been taken by somebody. They had a plan for that. They didn't have a plan for the emotional... Ripping apart that came from his wife being taken and being used by Pharaoh. Doubt. The decision in the face of doubt to work it out for myself, to put a plan in place to defend myself against that doubt results in a crisis. And I would say that our experience so often matches that, doesn't it? How often have you experienced, if you haven't experienced this, if you are following Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you are seeking to live a life of faith and you haven't experienced this, you will experience it at some point in the future. The idea that I can't see a way around it, so I'll avoid trusting in God, and I will work it out for myself, and again and again, repeatedly, it ends up in crisis. Why? Because it is not faith. It's not faith, it's living according to my plan, living according to my way of dealing with it. God had driven them into Egypt. Was it Would he have protected them? That's the question. Or ultimately, maybe the next question is, does he protect them? We've got disaster, we've got doubt. Now we have the most remarkable deliverance. The Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? I think that gives every indication for us to understand that, that Pharaoh believed that this was Abram's sister. He wasn't bothered about going through the conventions of asking his permission. That didn't bother him. He was willing to pour out wealth on Abraham. He was wanting to do with the power that he had what he could do. But he really believed this was his sister. What have you done to me? That gives us an indication, doesn't it, that that Pharaoh himself knew that what he had done was wrong if it turns out that this was Abraham's wife. He knew that it was wrong. Do not fall into the trap of assuming that moral understanding and ethical uh, consistency is only within those who are seen to be in ancient times the followers of God. What we often see is that the followers of God are the ones who are morally deficient. (laughs) And it's the ones who are not the followers of God who have an understanding of moral and ethical demands. That's exactly what we see here. But the great thing is that even though there is that imbalance, God still has his hand on Abraham and Sarai. Isn't that remarkable? Wouldn't you think in human terms, Abraham, you've blown it. You've just blown it. You don't deserve to be looked after. But God's made his promises. And our unfaithfulness and the fact that we blow it is not going to detract or knock him off course in fulfilling his promises. I think that is incredibly important for you and me today. How often do we find ourselves in this situation just like Abram? I've tried to do it my way. I'm in absolute crisis. I've got, are God's promises still there for me? Are they still there? Do they still mean the same? Or have I just done things which has created a barrier for God to ever bless me again? No. We've not created a barrier. In fact, nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's what the Bible says. That's what God promises. Nothing can separate us. I can blow it big time. And I'm still loved. That's what being a child of God is all about. He still loves me. He loves me enough to discipline me. To make me realize how much I've blown it. But he loves me. And he'll guide me and he'll keep me. And he'll do the same for you. That's what... That's what faith means. Ultimately, it's not in our faithfulness towards him. It's in his faithfulness towards us. That's what this story is about. God is faithful to Abraham and Sarai. Do you remember when, if you were here last week, maybe the week before, there's this remarkable word from God. God says to Abraham, let me tell you this. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That is an amazing statement. God is saying, through you, through your developing family, through your kingdom that will come, And ultimately, through your seed, which is Jesus, I will bless this world. You are to be the conduit for my blessing. But I tell you what, if anybody challenges you, if anybody offends you, it's like they're offending me. I will protect you. I will curse those who curse you. In other words, God is kind of saying it's like this. I want you to be such a display of me that if people stand in your way, they know that they're standing in my way. And that's exactly what God does with Pharaoh. Exactly. Exactly what God does. He fulfills his promise to curse those who curse him. You've done something terrible Pharaoh. You might not have even realized it but it's a bad thing and I'll make it clear for you that you've done a bad thing so that you will understand that you're coming face to face with God. Now what does Pharaoh do? He understands that. He gets that. He sees that there is something greater working in this situation because he summons Abraham. And he understands that the disease and the, the serious disease that is afflicting him and his family is as a result of his misdemeanor with the wife of Abram. He's angry with Abram because he was deceived. But he knows that the wrong, the moral ethical wrong of what he has done towards Sarai has resulted in this. But he also knows that if that's happened, something remarkable has gone on, hasn't it? Something super, supernatural has gone on. Why would it be that my household is afflicted because of what I have morally done? Abraham wasn't there when it happened. What Pharaoh got was that there is something bigger going on here, because what he didn't do is bring Abraham to his court and say, look what you've done, my judgment is that I will kill you, because that's exactly what he could have done. He could have said, the decision is that because you deceived me, I will kill you, and I'll kill Sarai as well. But he understood there was a greater power going on here, there was a greater authority that was going on, and so he said, go. Go, just go. And what happens? He left. Sent him out, banished him from his presence, gave orders from Abraham to to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Isn't that amazing? He didn't even strip him of the possessions. Isn't that incredible? In a sense, in a sense, God fulfills precisely what he said in that promise. There is a curse upon Pharaoh, but there is also a blessing upon Pharaoh because he doesn't go too far. He doesn't do the wrong thing. And he ends up blessing Abraham. This is a remarkable story. Who's... In control. Who's setting the agenda? Abraham goes in. He tells lies. He gets found out by the most powerful man in the whole of the world at the time. And he ends up leaving with more possessions than he could ever have imagined. That should not happen in human terms, does it? But that is exactly what God works out. So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went up from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier. And where he had built, first built an altar, there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. That is a, just a wonderful reconciling kind of final statement. It's like he comes out of all of this and he reflects and he thinks, I need to go back to all of the places where I remember God's blessing. I need to go back so that I can remember when I look back on this past period of time, however long the Egypt experience was, I know that it was God who was with me. When I went into that disaster of the famine, when I went through the doubt which resulted in me being absolutely self-sufficient and resulting in more crisis, I know that God was bigger. I know that God was working it through and I want to turn to God right now. I think that's something that we need to constantly do. But there's something more here. 300 years later, God's people end up in Egypt. Why? Because of a famine. 500 years later, God's people end up enslaved and end up leaving Egypt with more wealth than they could ever have gone in with. Doesn't that make us think that just maybe This little story had more of a purpose than just the events of one man's life. We have the advantage of being able to see uh, 500 years ahead of time. We can see that in a sense, history repeated itself. Yes, there was a disaster. Yes, there was uh, doubt. Yes, there was deliverance but it was pointing to a much bigger deliverance. A deliverance for God's people 500 years later. Well, that's interesting. A little bit of a stepping stone there. God preparing our thinking. God allowing us to see the way things unfold. Remarkable, actually, that 500 years later that might happen. 2,000 years later. tiny baby is facing absolute death. The same kind of death as a famine. The same kind of assurance of death as a famine. Where does Mary and Joseph, on the command of God, go to? They go to Egypt. Now, If we've got our heads around this, are we beginning to see that we're the way God works with us is he says, now listen to me, I'll show you this, it won't be perfect, it'll just be about a man who goes down into Egypt, but then I'll show you this, it will be, it'll be a bit bigger actually, it'll be about a, a huge family that goes down into Egypt and ends up returning as a great nation as a great deliverer by salvation. Now let me show you all of that for the sake of this 2,000 years later. Because the greatest deliverer, the one who goes down into, the, into Egypt with the weakness of a baby, couldn't be weaker, couldn't be more threatened Ends up returning from Egypt to be the greatest deliverer. A greater deliverer than Abraham, a greater deliverer than the people of God, the greatest deliverer. He becomes the fulfillment of the promise earlier on, where God says, Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And you will be a blessing to the whole of the world. It's rooted in Egypt and the coming out of Egypt. And the fact that Jesus ended up in Egypt so that he could come out and be the greatest deliverer. So that you and I can see that the fact that Herod got angry in Jerusalem when the wise men said that Jesus was born down there, when he got angry about that, was once again not outside of God's purpose, was once again not outside of God's hand. 2,000 years creating a story step by step, piece by piece, every scene becoming bigger and bigger so that the ultimate scene becomes the ultimate deliverer, the salvation, not just for a nation, but for the world. I think that's remarkable. And it's rooted in the fact that God is faithful. God is delivering his promises. And for you and for me today... The salvation of Jesus is not dependent on us doing all of the things right. Just like Abraham. God saved him when he messed up. And God saves us when we mess up. Isn't that remarkable? What ultimately was it that Abraham expresses As he comes back out into the land and goes to Bethel and Ai. He says this, I'm trusting you. I'm going to go through peaks and troughs and ups and downs and I'm going to mess up. But I want to just put another stake in the ground. I trust what you've said. I trust your word. We're going to sing a closing song. And the words are really poignant when it comes to this. I'm trusting in your word, trusting in your cross, trusting in your blood and all your faithfulness for your power at work in me is changing me. This little excerpt for Abraham does what? It changes it just a little bit more. Strips him of his dependence Just a little bit more so that he places more dependence in the God who loves him.